Welcome to Life Lessons with Dr. Steve Shell. For 20 years, Dr. Steve's 30-minute radio program, Life Lessons, was heard throughout the United States. Committed to comprehensively teaching through entire books of the Bible, Pastor Steve pulls out the deep, eternal truths in each section of Scripture without skipping over the challenging passages. He applies what is learned clearly and practically so that we're inspired not to just be hearers of the Word, but doers also. Lord, we love your word. We love you. And we love how you change lives. You are, you are here with us. You are, you are the Savior. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we may be saved. Lord, you've given us your truth, and we have to have that deep in our hearts. Would you open our ears today? Would you open our eyes? We would hear and see the things of God. We present to you soft hearts, that which is truth, that which is your word, Lord. We receive it gladly. We ask you to teach us not only to believe it, but to obey it. Come, Holy Spirit, now grace me to get out of the way and let us see Jesus. In his name we pray, amen. John 14, I'll begin at verse 19. All of these, and we'll be just doing this for a while, we're in the upper room on the night in which Jesus was betrayed. At the end of that evening, he goes across the Kidron Valley and waits in the Garden of Gethsemane. This material is not in the other Gospels. And I, I think John, who was pastoring up in Ephesus, uh, I think he saw these other Gospels, undoubtedly had them, and realized that the whole dialogue that took place on that evening had been left out. The other, the synoptics uh, do not include it. Mark is pretty much the report of Peter. And then you've got Matthew. And then you've got Luke who gathered the information. And the, it, this, this, this evening's uh, dialogue wasn't there. And this was the night in which Jesus really prepared them for the season ahead. He said, I'm going and here's what's going to happen. Here, the Holy Spirit's going to come and he's going to dwell in you. We saw that last week. He's going to dwell inside of you. He, he began to talk about this. He said, you're going to have the authority of my name. And he begins to talk to them about the relationship they will have with him going forward. What does their ministry look like? What is the, what is the new age of, of ministry now that the spirits come or when he will come? What's it look like? That's what he's describing. And so that's what we're learning and that's what we're digesting right now. Just letting, letting him teach us as if we were in that upper room. As if we were there with him, letting him teach us. Starting at verse 19. After a little while, the world will no longer see me, but you will see me. Because I live, you will live also. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and will disclose myself to him. I, whatever version you have there, let's read verse 21 out loud. This is one of our key verses. He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and will disclose myself to him. And then Judas, the son of James, asks a very inappropriate question. It's a foolish question. Um, John included it probably to let us know the condition of things. <laughs> Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, what then has happened that you're, you're, not, you're going to disclose yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus really doesn't answer him. He just kind of goes on. It says he answered him. That's only being polite. It said to him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him. And we will come to him and make our abode with him. Would you say, we will come to him and make our abode with him? <laughs> then he puts it in the negative. He says, he who does not love me does not keep my words. And the word which you hear is not mine, but the father's who sent me. When people talk about serving the Lord... When they try to convince us to selflessly minister to others, they often assure us that our service will bring with it a deep sense of fulfillment. We will feel good about ourselves knowing that we did something meaningful 
and helpful. Let me, let me stop there. You, you've, you've heard it. We've all heard it. I've probably done it. Uh, but you often say to people, oh, come on, you know, just let's you serve and, 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 and roll up your sleeves. You'll, you'll feel so good about yourself. I mean, you'll feel, have this warm glow that you've done something meaningful. You know, it's all about f- fulfillment, isn't it? Self-fulfillment. It, there, is in, there is in us well, almost it's a cynical thing. You, when you ask the people to give to the Lord, you, you never say, because there's poor and lost people and you need to help reach them. You always say, because you'll get a hundredfold return on your money. If you invest your tithe, God's going to prosper you and he'll be the, you know, your co-pilot and your business and all of this kind of stuff. So we, we bribe people. We, we speak to their greed and say, hey, give a little bit to God, he'll give you more. And we think that's, uh, that's, that's, that's the generosity of the church. You know, how about people are dying without Christ all over the world? How about people are starving? How about people are in need? How about the work of Jesus Christ needs to go forward? And you, you and I are, have said to Christ, everything I have is yours. So why isn't that just a part of our life? I mean, it just isn't that difficult uh, for a disciple. And then so we say, well, if you're going to serve God, you've got to feel good about yourself. I think there's another reason. But in practice, such feelings may boost our self-esteem for a moment, but they rarely make up for the level of personal sacrifice that was required of us. So those who serve in order to get those good feelings soon discover the result wasn't worth the effort. I mean, (laughs) I got a little bit of a warm glow for about five minutes. Those feelings aren't worth the cost. Which I think is why some people start out with the best intention of helping others, but quickly grow weary of it. What they got wasn't worth what they gave. But there is a reward that's worth the cost. Like a mother who quickly forgets her labor as she holds her new baby in her arms, there is a gift of God so wonderful that it outweighs the suffering we had to endure to gain it. This reward is seldom, if ever, mentioned. In fact, it's hard to think of anyone but Jesus and Paul who talk about it. But it is the greatest reward a human can receive, this side of heaven. It is the gift of God's presence. It is that incredible feeling of knowing that he is there with us, helping us, guiding us, protecting us, providing for us, working miracles for us, so that we can do what he has called us to do. There is nothing This life can offer that is sweeter. His presence is unlike anything else. And that evening, as Jesus prepared his disciples for the new season ahead, he explained to them that if they loved him, they would obey him, which of course meant that they would seek to live according to the truths he had taught them and on a day-to-day basis would try to do what they saw him doing and speak what they heard him speaking. They would enter into a submitted relationship with him like the relationship he had modeled for the past two and a half years between himself and his father. Let me stop there. Are you picking this up? I, I, had, I, no one, I can't recall anybody teaching me this, but it's sure there. Jesus says, all right, for the last two and a half years, you've watched me do what I saw the father do in the spirit. Speak what I heard the Father speak. I have done and represented him perfectly. He says, now, when I'm going to ascend to the Father, the Holy Spirit will come and he will dwell in you. And then I, being the divine Son of God, will be with you as will the Father. And he says, here's the new relationship. You now will do what you see me, Jesus, do. I'm the head of the church. And so I will lead you. And you will do what you see me do. You will speak what you hear me speak. Meanwhile, I remain in my Father. I remain submitted, dependent upon, and seeking to glorify my Father. I think, I think sometimes we think, well, Jesus was submitted to the Father while he was down here on the planet. But once he goes back, I mean, he's, he's equal, isn't he? And we go back into this thing. I don't think that's the case. I think he says, in fact, I know he says, he he remains submitted to the Father. And you say, well, does that mean he's not equal? Look, I'm a father. 
I'm actually a grandfather. I, I have children who are as human, maybe arguably more so, than me. They're as bright, they're as capable in their own right as I am. There's no difference there. And yet, there is a respect and an honor that comes. Why? Simply because I'm the older guy in the family. In the sense, I'm, I'm, the, I'm, the, I'm the father or I'm a grandfather. Do you follow this? In Western culture, this idea of respect, this idea of a role, this idea of honoring uh, is, is really lost. It is not lost in most of the world. Most of the world deeply understands this. Uh, grandparents, parents are honored. There's, there's, there's roles. No one thinks they're less than. It's a matter of, of honor and, 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 and respect. You have in the relationship between the father and the son that. And I believe that's an eternal condition. The son continually honors and delights in the father continually seeks to represent him. There is no strain, there is no tension, there is no competition whatsoever. Father, the son wants to glorify the father. The father, in turn, to the son, says to, to all creation, because of what he has done, because of his, 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 his submission to me and, his, and all, I place all things under his authority. I call, I, every knee shall bow, every tongue shall confess, uh, Jesus Christ to the what? Glory of God the Father. You follow this? Yeah. The, we, we've had this, this sort of struggle with the, the ideas of the Trinity and all of these kinds of things. It's kind of confusion. It isn't that complicated. He, and for heaven's sakes, it is not an egg. Oh, yeah, I hate that. You know, the, the thing with the shell and the yolk and the white and all that kind of stuff. That's a monster. That's not God. <laughs> Or snow, or I mean, ice, water, and steam. That's a monster. You, you don't worship ice, water, and steam. You don't worship various, you know, this, this, this thing that manifests itself different ways. That's disgusting. There's a heavenly father who has begotten, we're not told, and it isn't, anyway, but it has re reproduced his, 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 himself in a, in a divine son. Hallelujah. That's the most Christian truth there is of all things. The Father has begotten a Son and sent him for us. It's the heart of it. And so, and the Son worships, loves the Father. Um, the Father, the Son now is in this position of authority by which all creation is being brought into submission to the Son, which then Paul says, as, as, as things come to an end, the Son will take all these things that are in submission to him and he will offer them up to the Father so that the Father may be glorified. It'd be all in all, is what Paul says. You remember this? It's 1 Corinthians 15, if you don't. We have, we have this going on. And so this is what he's explaining. This, he says, now, I'm the head of the church. You will listen to me. You will follow me. You will follow my leadership. I, your Lord, will lead you, even as I follow my Father. Let's hear his words again. But this time, let's listen not only to the command, but also to the promise that goes with it. Would you read this with me? The one who has my commands and keeps them, obeys them, that is the one who loves me. And the one who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and will reveal myself in him to him. That's actually what it says. There is a word there that's used. It's the only place in the New Testament. There's a Greek word that, that speaks of, 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 of light shining onto something so that you can see what's there. It's, we translate it manifest or revealed, stuff like that. But in this case, it's that word with a preposition stuck on the front of it. The preposition is the word in. So it's the light shining, the revealing in. So he says, I will reveal myself in him to him. Isn't that beautiful? Wow. And again, read this with me. If, if someone loves me, he will keep, obey my word. And my father will love him. And we will come to him. And we will make a dwelling place with him, beside him. Later that evening, and I'll read this. He added this statement. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. 
These things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. His logic is straightforward and easy to understand. He says, in effect, if you love me, you'll obey me. And if you obey me, the Father and I will be with you. And when we are with you, you will be full of joy. Does that make sense? Just straightforward is what he said. He, he laid out the conditions and stated the results. If we do this, he will do that. If he does that, the effect upon us will be this. He is showing us the path that leads to the greatest reward of all. Jesus said, yet a little while and the world beholds me no longer, but you behold me because I live, you will also live. He was telling his disciples not to be sorrowful because he would come back to life. And that's exactly what happened. After three days in the grave, he physically rose from the dead. And for a period of 40 days between his resurrection and ascension, he allowed believers to encounter him, even to the point of touching him and eating with him. The Bible records at least 11 such encounters, five on the first day. And Paul's encounter with him on the road to Damascus brings the number to 12. By saying this, because, by saying, because I live, you will also live, he was explaining to them that his victory over death meant that they too would escape the grip of death. But the Lord's promise that his disciples would be able to behold him speaks of even more than those appearances between his resurrection and ascension. It was meant to assure them that they would have an ongoing relationship with the risen Jesus. They would be able to observe, behold him, in the same way as he had observed the Father. He constantly did what he saw the Father do. And in the new season ahead, they would function in the same manner. Only they would observe him, Jesus. He would be with them spiritually and they would follow his lead. The phrase, in that day, seems to point to the new season of ministry, which would begin after he ascended into heaven and poured out the Holy Spirit upon his disciples. After that, the Holy Spirit would be in them to empower them, and the risen Jesus would be with them to lead them. He would not, by becoming their leader, usurp the Father's authority, because he would remain in my Father, meaning he would continue to submit to, depend on, and perfectly represent the Father. Just as he had been doing throughout his earthly ministry, he would continue to do as their risen Lord. It is the Father's will that his Son lead the church. In fact, it is his will that his Son become head over all creation. The Father's plan is this. With Jesus remaining in the Father, his disciples would remain in Jesus, and Jesus would be in them. The disciples, Jesus' disciples would submit to, depend on, and perfectly represent Jesus, and he would guide, empower, and reveal himself through them. Does this make it sense? He's our Lord. He's our head. He's the head of the church. He is the head of the body. And so he guides us, and he leads us, and he teaches us all to the glory of God the Father. John says Jesus answered Judas' question, but his answer appears to ignore the question. Basically, Jesus simply repeated what he said earlier about love and obedience. And then he added further insight. Not only would he come to be with the obedient disciple, but the Father would also be present. He said, if someone loves me, he will keep obeying my word. And my Father will love him, and we will come to him, and we will make a dwelling place with, beside him. The reward for loving and obeying Jesus, for believing what he taught, obeying his commands, and submitting to his ongoing spiritual leadership would be the presence of God surrounding that person. Both Father and Son would be present. Then, so no one would miss the connection he was making between love and obedience, Jesus restated the truth from the opposite perspective. He said, the one who does not love me does not keep or obey my words. Consistent, willful disobedience to, to believe what he taught, do what he commanded, or submit to his ongoing spiritual leadership reveals a lack of love. A disciple who loves Jesus wants to be like him. Then he added, the word which you hear is not, is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. By calling his disciples to submit to him, Jesus was not being ambitious or trying to usurp the Father's place of authority. His role as their Lord was God's will. 
It was part of a plan that had been revealed long before by the prophets. Love always leads to obedience. The person who loves Jesus naturally wants to please him. They want to do what he asks them to do, and inevitably what he will ask them to do will include some form of selfless service to people. You can just, you just know where it's going to go. If you sign up for this deal, you know where he's going to lead you. He will lead you to people. If you love him, he says, remember what he said to Peter? Do you love me? Yes, I love you. Feed my sheep. <laughs> Do you love me? Yes. Tend my lambs. Do you love me? Yes. <laughs> Feed my sheep. Feed my sheep. Care for my people. Care for the... Whether it's serving those in the church or outside the church, his will always leads us to people. And it's always costly. Once we start loving and obeying, he immediately recruits us into his great work of redemption. He loves, saves, heals, teaches, and trains people through us. And there are so many who need him and so few who truly love him that there's no time to waste. He quickly draws us into situations which are too hard for us, that require much more knowledge than we possess, that have impassable obstacles in front of them, that demand time, energy, and skills we don't have to give. But it is that very desperation that comes when we face those challenges that drives us to find his presence. We need him and we know it. We can't do what he's asked us to do unless he goes before us and makes a way. So in our desperation, we seek him earnestly, sincerely, and with a focused mind. And when we do that, we enter into another promise. Would you read this with me? You will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. That's Jeremiah. I love that, I love that promise. Do you, are you following He will, if you follow him and say yes to him, he will ask you to do something you can't do. In fact, that's just the nature of walking with God. He always asks us to do things that are impossible. Think of Moses. Poor Moses. You know, there he's been 40 years tending sheep on the the side of Mount Sinai. And the bush is shining, I'm sure, with the the, the glory of God. Uh, And he comes up to it. And the Lord talks to him from the glory, and he says, um, I want you to go to Egypt and tell Pharaoh, let my people go. <laughs> and uh, now Moses does know Egypt. He did grow up in the household, and he knows exactly how impossible this is. And he says, I can't do that. Why don't you send my brother? Um, and um, he keeps pressing that point. What was Moses' hang-up? He argues back to God, almost to the point you think he's going to get fried right on the spot. The bush is just going to go, you know, and nail him. Uh, But he doesn't. Uh, But Moses really presses it, really presses it. And he keeps arguing he can't do this. Why did he say he can't do it? He has a speech impediment, apparently. He says, I'm I'm, I'm, I'm slow of speech. I, I can't talk well. Think of that. To this day, how many thousands of years uh, later? That was about 14 BC, 14, uh, 1400, I mean. Um, we added all up, 3,400, 3, 3,500 years ago, somewhere in that area. We're still reading Moses. And, and he says, I just don't talk well. <laughs> and, uh, well, so, by, so he, he, he presses all of this, but he's looking what? At his own capacities. Do I have the eloquence to go into Egypt and talk Pharaoh out of, out of a, a million and a half people of his slaves? I don't think so. And he didn't. No way you can do that. For him to do what God was asking him to do, there would have to be a miracle. In fact, a whole lot of them, right? For you to do what God is asking you to do, there will have to be a miracle. Probably a whole lot of them. Do you follow? This is the walk of God. This is, this is what it's like. This is what it always involves. Not just for some poor people who get, you know, out there on the extreme religious fringe. This is for every disciple of Jesus. He says, he says here's what it's going to be. You're going to do what you hear me do. You're going to do what you see me do. You're going to speak what you hear me speak. You follow me. And you know where he'll lead you. 
He'll lead you into situations where you do not have the capacity to do it. And in that desperation, all of a sudden, your prayers get real serious. All of a sudden, your worship life gets intense. All of a sudden, you're going, oh, oh God, I can't do this. Help. And you, your, your mind's focused. You know, you're, you're, you're scared. Hallelujah. And you're really meaning it. God, you've got to help me. And when you search for him with all your heart, what happens? Yes. You see, it's the dullness from us. It's the lackadaisical prayers. It's the dull mind. It's the, it's the routine cranking it out. It's just deadly. It's just deadly. If, if, you're, if, you're, if, you're, if what I'm talking about is new to you, you may be a brand new Christian, bless you. This is, where, this is the life. But if you've been at this a long time, then you have learned a skill. And the skill you've learned is to resist the prompting of the Holy Spirit. You have refused to do what he's asked you to do because you, it scares you. And every time he put, asks you to do something that scares you, you've learned if I hunker down and get, you just, just ignore it, I can make it pass. It'll just pass me by. Don't do that. Stop it. I can tell you something about your spiritual life right now. You're bored. You're really bored. And, and you're looking for some, either entertainment or you switch churches trying to find some exhilaration. Uh, you're looking for something because you're trying to stay safe and have a life, a vital life with God. It doesn't work like that. The vital life of God is, is in the wilderness. It's in the, it's in the, it's in the battle. And, and all of us are soldiers. When I made the statement that there's not enough, we're moving, I, that is a terrible understatement. I, I observed it. Everywhere we go, we, we send a team to, just now we just got them back from Cote d'Ivoire. Was it 275 people gave their lives to Christ? Well, if we hadn't gone, would they? You say, and, and then you're, we're, you're going again this fall. I know because my wife's on this one. Uh, and, and, and you're headed to Myanmar? Niger, thank you. Okay, Niger. Look it up on a map later. They're going to Niger, and you've been there. Is this the third time? Third time. And this is a 97% Muslim country. And we have hundreds of people each time give their lives to the Lord. By the way, after you say, is that, is that stick? The next Sunday after you left Cote d'Ivoire, 65 people, new believers, showed up in church. Yeah, it sticks. This isn't a game. And boy, I'll tell you, in those cultures, when they say yes to the Lord, they're not playing a game either. Their lives are on the line. Their whole, their whole family relationships are on the line. They're paying everything for this. 65 new people showed up in church to worship Jesus that next Sunday. The, I'm telling you, the, the, yes, I know, we can all look at the negative things. We can look at the political things that are just all over the place. But human hearts are still open to the Lord all over the planet. In fact, I would say, I would argue it's more than I've ever seen. I would argue it's better now than I've ever seen it. It's easier pickings, if you want to say it. People are riper and ready to come to the Lord than I've ever seen it. And all it takes is somebody who says, well, okay, I'll help. I'll roll up my sleeve and I'll follow what Jesus has given me to do. I'll step into the miracle. I'll let him get me in it out, out of my depth. I'll let, him, I'll let him put me into something I don't feel like I'm qualified for. And then trust he'll come up with a miracle. Your prayer life will amp up. Your intensity will focus. And you will find God meets you there. And here's the greatest reward. I'm telling you, when, you're, when you sit there and you know how little you had to give and you know how desperate you were and then you watch the Lord show up, there, that does, there is a, his presence, his love, his approval, is, is, there's nothing like it. It's, it. You get one of those, I was made to do this moments. This is why I'm alive. This is the most precious reward of all. When we seek him that way, with all our heart, he always comes. What started out as an overwhelming problem, a scary step of faith, turns into a moment we will never forget. The cycle of ministry. What, why does a person who have to love Jesus to obey him? Because what he asks us to do is so hard, we won't do it for any other reason. And what makes his will so difficult 
is that it can't be done unless he shows up and does a miracle. Not just once, not just the first time, but every time for as long as we do it. Am I talking you into it or out of it? Time after time, we are confronted with feelings of inadequacy, yet have to step out and obey him anyway. And then as we do, we experience the fulfillment of his promise. His presence comes and we feel his love for us. This is where life is. This is the path. If you want to stay vital, you want to stay full of life with the Lord Jesus, this is the path of it. You would think that after watching him faithfully come to help us a few times, we would no longer struggle with the question of our own inadequacies. We would boldly step out knowing he was sure to meet us. You would think that after his presence surrounded us and the joy of the Lord flooded our hearts, we would never again pity ourselves for the level of personal sacrifice we've been required to make. But that's not usually the case. We seem to need to wrestle with our flesh each time. And I think there's a reason for this. Would you open your Bible again to Mark 14? John describes this event, but Mark bring, includes a, a particular uh, element in the description that I want to bring out. Mark chapter 14, uh, look at verse 1. This is taking place, um, I, think, I think this is taking place uh, two days, or, or possibly three, two days before uh, the upper room that we're reading about. So just two days earlier, this happened in the town of Bethany, which is just two miles away. Now the Passover and the unleavened bread were two days away, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to seize him by stealth and kill him. For they were saying, not during the festival, it actually would be one day earlier, otherwise there would be a, a riot of the people. While he was in Bethany at the home of Simon the leper, and reclining at a table there, a, a, a woman with a, came with an alabaster vial of very costly perfume of pure nard. Nard is a, a plant that has a beautiful odor in, in India. And he broke the vial and poured it over his head. She broke the vial and poured it over his head. Some were indignant, remarking to one another, why has this per perfume been wasted? We know that's Judas Iscariot. For this perfume might have been sold for over 300 denarii and the money given to the poor, and they were scolding her. Now, what's a woman doing with that much perfume? I mean, is this, where we just put, you know, how do you like the smell? It, a pound, and do you know how much it's worth? A denarius is what you paid a, day, a laborer for a day's work. So, what? Take... Uh, the average of, what, minimum wage or something? Maybe add to that, if you're really talking about heavy labor, uh, and multiply that times 300. What do you come up with? Somewhere around $30,000, $40,000, I don't know. Something like that. That's a lot of perfume, folks. That is an enormously valuable thing. And, and when you think of this vial, this alabaster vial, don't think of some crude implement. Uh, one of the, we go to Israel, we always go to the Israel Museum in the antiquities section, and there's one whole section given to glassware, and to, uh, there's another one to jewelry, by the way, and the glasswork is gorgeous. I mean, you're talking long stems and mixed colors and, you know, beautiful handles, and don't, don't think something crude. Now, this is alabaster, that's a stone, but it, it, and, it, and it's got apparently a neck on the thing that you can, you can snap. And it's, it's, it's stopped permanently. What are you doing with a pound of this kind of valuable perfume? I think I know. I think it's for her own burial. In, 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 in the custom of the day for Judaism, burial went like this. You know, the person's dead. You've got to bury them right away. So that's why you have the perfume and the materials on hand. If you can afford it, you've got it there, so if you die, they can bury you properly. So she's probably got one, Mary's probably got one, Lazarus had one. Uh, he's got used already. Uh, <laughs> so, so 
she, 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 you would take and you, you wash the body, you, you anoint it with this, this beautiful smelling perfume, and then you begin to wrap it with long linen strips, and into the strips you mix things like myrrh and aloes. Aloes you know, has, a, has some, some sort of you know, protective effect on the, on the skin and all, and, and then the myrrh is a sweet-selling scent, and you wrap the thing like a mummy. You, it is, you haven't mummified it. You didn't do anything to the internal organs or anything like that. You just, you just wrap it, but it's, but it's all wrapped up. And then you take that body and you put it into the burial chamber. And you leave it there, roll a stone over it, and leave it there for about a year. Uh, and in the course of that, in that dry air, the body dries and, and it desiccates. And then you go back in a year later, you open it up, and you take the body, and you unwrap this thing, and you take the bones apart. And the bones just, I suppose, fall apart. And they, you have what's called a bone box. It's uh, made out of stone, and it's just long enough for the femur, you know, and then whatever else. And you pile the bones into the box, put the lid on it, and stick that in a niche right there in the walls of the burial chamber. You're, and you're ready for the next person. So she is taking, listen to this, she's taking her oil. I think it's her burial oil. And she comes to him in this, in this meal, and she doesn't, she, she doesn't pull a cork out. They may have been sealed with something tighter than that. She, doesn't, she, she, she breaks it. She snaps the neck. She's committed. And she pours this oil over his head. That's pure perfumed oil. You'll never get that out of your hair. Really. I mean, it's in the hair. He's going to smell like this for a long time. And his skin, everything else, he's just coated with this pure nard, this oil that's all over him. And, and really, only within two days, he'll be on the cross. Now, think of that. Even as they're crucifying him, even as they're scourging him, even as they're beating him and tearing his beard and doing these horrible things, the beautiful aroma of that perfume is all over him. She is prophesying. She's the only person I see in the New Testament who understood or actually listened to Jesus when he said, I'm going to die. All the rest had a different theology, and they refused to hear what he said. And they argue with him. That's what James uh, or Judas, son of James, was just doing. Like he still doesn't get it. Mary did, and she takes her burial oil. She snaps the neck. She pours it over him, and he says this. He says, "Stop it, you poor. You have always with you. You can give to them as you will." But he says, "You don't always have me." He said, "She's anointing me for my burial." She was prophesying. What's surprising? is that Mary of Bethany had to break the alabaster vial in order to pour the oil on Jesus. One would have expected her to pull out a stopper and drip a small portion onto his head. But she broke the container, probably by snapping uh, the elongated neck in half and then, and then poured out the, an entire pound of perfume. As Jesus later explained, she was prophesying. She was preparing his body for burial. And then I mentioned that. Let's go to the next paragraph. The breaking of that vial of oil illustrates a profound spiritual truth. Like that vial, God needs to break us before his Holy Spirit can minister through us. We must be humbled and brought to a point of desperation. But being broken is always an unpleasant experience. If somebody says we had a wonderful spirit of brokenness there, they didn't have one. I mean, it, being broken hurts. I mean, it just, just does. It causes us to cry out to God for help and really mean it. It brings an intensity to our prayers. It focuses our attention upward. Once again, we become aware of how much we need him. So we search for him with all our hearts until we find him. And then the sweet aroma of his presence becomes so beautiful. We forget the struggle that brought us to that place. We become full, whole, at peace. Jesus called that feeling joy. And the person who experiences that joy will always long to return. It's addicting. It's like a breath of fresh air. It's a moment of sanity in a world that's gone crazy. It's him. He's with us and his presence is so wonderful. We're willing to go through the process again and again and again. 
The psalmist described it this way. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. As for me, the nearness of God is my good. Why do you have to keep breaking the vial? Because pride rises up. Pride rises up in us. It is part of the process of being a disciple of Jesus Christ that we go through this pressure of desperation, this sense of inadequacy, this, this process in which we cry out and come to him and press in. He breaks us, not just once, not just the first time. It's the way it needs to be for most of us. Because if it's not there, we begin to think it's us. We begin to let others think it's us. We begin to believe a lie, and in that we become terribly dangerous. And you'll see it. You'll see people who don't go through a brokenness. You'll see them rise up in this pride. I mean, they got the goods, man. They got the goods. And then there's this kind of self thing about it. There, there are, anyway, I'll stop. We're around too long. Um, and yet there are those who, who walk with the Lord like this, and he breaks them. And there's a humility in them. And they're tender, humble people. And yet God uses them with such power. You follow? It's part of the walk. Faith does grow. As we develop a history of seeing God's faithfulness. Of having him show up and replacing our inadequacy with his adequacy. Those fears do grow less or at least become more familiar. It becomes easier to remind ourselves that he has never failed us and then push aside the doubts. But the process itself of breaking, of pouring out, never completely goes away. Because you and I need to be humbled again and again. We, if we aren't, pride rises. We begin to think that it's our wisdom, our power, our goodness that brings life to others. But the, those thoughts must never be allowed to remain. We, they are, all, are deadly, both to us and to those we serve. The alabaster vial must be broken over and over again in order to pour out the sweet oil it contains. Reflection. Think about your own life. If you've walked with Jesus for any length of time, you'll recognize the process we've described. You've been through that painful preparation and then felt him strengthen you as you took that first obedient step. You know what it feels like to be in the middle of a situation and then suddenly realize that God has come and is doing a great work. You've stepped aside after ministry or a mission and asked yourself, how did we do that? Have you been there? Have you, have you realized how little you had to give to the thing? And you did your very best, you know, you, know you, you did it, you showed up, you suited up and you did it. And then you, when you're done, you see the results of it and you go, how did that happen? Uh, one, one, this is a simple one, but, well, simple, but actually it wasn't simple if you were there. Uh, I'm thinking of the summer missions. Uh, virtually every summer you see this, where the summer missions, where we go out and, and, and work on the church. But I'm thinking of the one in Boise, Idaho, a number of years ago. And this church building, it was, I think it was a, a government building or Quonset Hut or something that had been original. And they, they bought this thing. It was just a struggling little church trying to get going. And we came over to, to get this building usable as a church. And when we took the siding off the thing, we sided, the whole side buckled. Um, it was, it was, all the structure was gone. And it, it, the wall was like this. And, it, and the whole thing was going to come down. You know, it was downright dangerous. So we're putting boards under it to hold the roof up. And uh, at this point, we don't want a building inspector anywhere around us. Um, <laughs> And we're looking at this going, oh, my goodness. And the place is just trashed. It's just a, it's, you, this is one of those overwhelming things. In the course of it, those guys, we've always got some really, really smart guys and, who know what they're doing. And then the rest of us, uh, we do what we're told. And uh, they, they got that thing up there. You know, it, it is interesting. Like People like me, uh, I remember being on that thing, and they had, gave me the nail gun. And uh, I shot a nail through one side of a wall straight into the electric box. <laughs> I hadn't checked what's on the other side. You know. 
And then <laughs> I heard this kind of quink, and I thought I went around the other side of the wall and went over there and I couldn't see my nail anywhere. And then I went and I lifted up the electric box, and there was a nail coming right in, just just a fraction of an inch from the power. <laughs> Woo! I almost lit us up, or lit me up. Uh, but you got help like that. You know, you give us long rows here, nail those rows. I can, I can do that. I can do that. You know, in the course of those, those two weeks we were there, we completely redid that thing. They had put a roof on it uh, beforehand. We completely redid it, completely sheetrocked it with these beautiful bullnose corners on everything. I mean, those guys were working all night with blowers going like crazy, mudding the walls and everything. We carpeted the thing, did the entire uh, Christian Ed wing, did the landscaping. I'm not talking about putting in ground shaping, rocks, a beautiful sign, um, lawn put in, uh, and a, a sprinkling system. There's a whole thing, all of this. All of this. And, and I remember coming to the end of that mission and standing on the other side of the road, you know, as I was ready to leave and just looking over there going, how in the world did we do that? Because when we walked away, that was the prettiest little church you ever saw in your life. In fact, the church, I immediately within just months got a call from the pastor going, how do you go to two services? And then he called me again and go, how do you go three services, you know? And so the, the guys the, the, grew to three services. They ended up selling the building and buying Gold's Gym just north of them, which is where they are now. So how did that happen? You walk in, and you've got a whole bunch. You've got men, women, and children. A bunch of us have no idea what we're doing. We have a few contractors or people who are skilled. They're telling us what to do and guiding us. And then we just work. And when we walk away from the thing, we've left like $250,000 worth of value. How does that happen? God shows up. And I've seen it over and over again. Do you, any of you know YWAMers? YWAMers, there's an annoying quality about YWAMers. <laughs> they always want to be back on the field. Have you noticed? They come home, but they really don't want to be home. They, 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 they want to be back there. And you think, what's wrong with here? You know, can you just settle down? And, and there's always this longing in them to be back. I'll tell you what they miss. They miss walking in the miracle. They miss being in a situation where they're out of their depth and they desperately need God. They miss waking up in the morning saying, oh, God, help us. What are we going to do? Help us here. And having God show up. I'm telling you, this is where life is. When you and I will allow ourselves to follow the Lord and get stretched Get out of our depth, get out of our safety, get out of our comfort, get where he leads us. Yes, it is uncomfortable. There is the breaking of the alabaster vial. There is that whole process, but there is this sweet oil. There is the joy that comes with it. And it's addicting because he's close. He's real. Your faith is strong. You know he approves of you. You know he loves you. He's there and at work. You can see it in front of you. It's all around you. You follow this? This is the reward. He says, if you will abide in me, if you'll do what I say you'll, and, and be in me, I and my Father will come to you and you will have joy. He's, it's all, it's completely the truth. How, <clears throat> it's just, you watched a meal cook and feed more mouths than it, and it should feed. I don't know if you've ever seen that. I have. You've called out to God and someone just happened to drop by. The right person just happened to be on duty. The rain ended just in time. And in those moments, you knew he was with you. You knew he was pleased. That's the reward. You had the privilege of being part of a miracle. You were there when his power came. You watched him care for someone through you. When you know you had nothing to give. You were the... You were overwhelmed, and yet it turned out so well. Nothing builds faith like that. Nothing washes away our loneliness and fear like that. Nothing brings a joy like that. Jesus said, those who love him will obey him, and obedience to Jesus will always lead, lead us into selfless, costly, scary acts of service. But when we take those obedient steps, he promised that his presence will always come to us. In tangible, recognizable ways, we will feel his love and recognize his pleasure. And that's the greatest reward this life has to give. Would you stand with me?
Blessed be the Lord. Blessed be the Lord. Blessed be the Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Holy Spirit, you are our strength. You are our counsel and our grace. You guide us and are with us. We do love you. We count on you. Open our ears, open our eyes that we would see our Lord and we would follow him. Lord Jesus, you, you are with us. You said, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. We believe that. You're here with us. This day, as we hear you speak to your disciples, we choose to follow. We choose to watch you and follow and do what you do. We choose to listen and speak what you speak. We're willing to get out of the safety and the comfort and the self-protection and to walk where we are not adequate, to walk where it can't be done, to walk into the miracle, Lord, that we might live with you in your power. Come, Holy Spirit, grace us and free us. If any of us are afraid, if this has held us for years, we just break that thing in the name of the Lord and say our God is great and he's faithful and he will not fail us. Thank you, Lord, for helping that beloved. Just take a step. Take that step out. For those who, who, are, who are walking it and even weary in it, Lord, thank you that you are our joy, that that sweet aroma is there, that you will be with us. We can do all things. We can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. Blessed be the Lord. Blessed be the Lord. We give ourselves to you. Hallelujah. If, that, if you agree with that statement, with that prayer, and, and are saying, Lord, I, I will, would you say, yes, Lord? We hear your word, Lord. We respond to you. Guide each one of us in our own way. Lead us into our path, into our calling, into our assignments. Thank you, Lord, for your doing so. We pray it in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, please click the like button, subscribe, and share it with a friend. For more information, just head to our website, lifelessonspublishing.com. That's lifelessonspublishing.com. There you'll be able to order many of the books Pastor Steve has written.